Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, hey, how you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. This is a Sunday episode. And I'm very pleased that my guest is Kate Durbin. She has a new poetry collection out on Wave Books. It is called Hoarders. And it is about the show Hoarders, which you may be familiar with from uh, cable television. It's kind of an American institution at this point, is it not? And Kate Durbin is such a fascinating artist. And I, I, I use the word artist to describe her because she's a hyphenate. And I feel like she's one of our uh, more iconoclastic thinkers, cultural observers, poets, writers. I've talked with her once before on this show a few years ago. And, you know, I was moved by hoarders and deeply fascinated with it for a variety of reasons. We had a really interesting talk because, you know, you describe the book as a book of poetry based on the show Hoarders, and you try to process what that's going to mean. And it turns out that in the hands of Kate Durbin, it means quite a lot. This is a compassionate book. This is a thoughtful sad, intelligent, darkly funny book. It's about connection. It's about not being able to let go of things. It's about the American dream, the dark side of the American dream. It's about materialism, what it means to be an American human in the contemporary age. It's about a lot. So again, the collection is called Hoarders. And my conversation with Kate Durbin is coming up momentarily. I should say, too, that uh, Kate Durbin is a visual and uh, visual slash performance artist, I guess, a digital artist. There's so many different ways that she works. 
but she has she has shown her work or performed her work all over the world, including a project called Hello Selfie, which I believe we spoke about when she was on the program last time around. There's another project called Unfriend Me Now, which is about Facebook, and then uh, another called The Supreme Gentleman, which is about the uh, mass shooter Elliot Roger. So Kate Durbin coming up in just a second. I do want to remind listeners that this program, the Other People Podcast, now has its own YouTube channel. The entire archive, more than 700 episodes and counting, uh, is available for free on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, just go search for the show by name, Other PPL, and subscribe. It's free. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I should also mention that the Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode is available to listeners free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. So if you enjoy this program, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, and if you have the means, I hope you'll consider supporting it. You can do that over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod for as little as $1 a month. There are different tiers, different levels of support. I try to make it easy to do. So for as little as $1 a month, you can support this show. And then as you go up the scale, You can get things like a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. I will send you a handwritten postcard. I will wish you happy birthday. I'll send you like a voice message where I tell you happy birthday. Come on. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod if you are so inclined. So before we get started with the conversation, I am going to have Kate Durbin read you a poem from this new collection entitled Hoarders, available now from Wave Books. This poem is called Marlena. This is Kate Durbin. I'm Marlena, the worst hoarder on planet Pink Sands Yankee Candle. My house is like a bomb went off at Walmart. Shattered seashell wreaths, tangle of rainbow LED hummingbird wind chimes, tie-dye lion tapestry with a hole in the lion's face, Drew Barrymore flower home collection plates with half-eaten luna bars and dead wasps. 
I was a fashion model for many years in Europe, moth-eaten Balenciaga dresses. Then my husband and I fell in love. Photo of young Marlena and a man hugging in front of a private jet, her hair in pigtails, her midriff tanned and toned. Our relationship was storybook, ceramic plate of two chickens pecking, smeared with crystallized honey. After a few weeks, he proposed, sun-bleached hippie boho fabric lovebirds. I felt like we stepped onto a magic carpet and just flew. Cost plus world market decorative pillows, glitter elephant throw, crushed banana chips, blackened bananas, crumpled sunset magazine pages, stuffed panda and lotus pose on Marlena's bed. But after our daughter was born, my husband started dating other women secretly, dozens of Louis Vuitton bags under the bed. When I found out, I just wanted a divorce. On the front door, keep out absolutely no solicitors, this means you. Beware of dog sign, card that says, Our Lady of Lourdes, pray for us. And underneath, in shaky handwriting, help me God. I felt suicidal, but I had my two-year-old daughter to think of. Photo of Marlena's daughter in pigtails and big Chanel sunglasses playing the piano. That was a very hard time for me. Completely lost in the bathroom, dusty makeup brushes, goopy concealer, Murky bottles of Dior nail polish, melted cherries on snow, Yankee candle with gray hairs stuck in the wax. I started collecting Whole Foods 365 products. My kitchen sink is totally full. Organic Turkish apricots, cheddar bunnies, sea salt avocado oil, canyon cut potato chips, Himalayan pink salt popcorn, cookie dough collagen protein bars, organic goji berries, blue magic cashew milk, majestic sprouted hummus. My hoarding has caused a terrible rift between me and my American Girl doll with a destroyed face. She started taking my things and throwing them out without asking, so I put all of her old things in plastic bags. Little Mermaid Ariel doll smeared with marker, Easy Bake Oven filled with old crumbs, Little Miss Makeup doll with red cheeks and lips and chewed fingers, clump of My Little Ponies. I said she wasn't welcome at the house anymore, dirty lips pillow that says, kiss me. I want desperately to change. Marlena digging in neighborhood trash bins, a flashlight strapped to her head. She pulls out Chase credit card statements, styrofoam food containers, Starbucks reusable plastic cups. But I don't like when people throw things out that still work. Marlena testing a Sharpie on an electricity bill. When they put trash in the recycling bin, I move it to the trash. Marlena carefully moving a Chiquita banana peel from the recycling to the trash. When plants in the neighborhood are not properly watered, I do. Marlena facing a tree, pouring water on its roots, her slender legs and her thin neck, her gray hair. Even though this is trash to most humans on the planet, it isn't trash to me. Marlena slowly reaching into a giant pile of unopened Whole Foods items on her kitchen floor and lifting out a bottle of water. Marlena somehow pulling a clean cup from the eruption inside the sink. Marlena pouring herself a cup of water to drink. All right, there you go. That is Kate Durbin reading a poem entitled Marlena from her new collection, Hoarders, available now from Wave Books. Such a nice time catching up with Kate Durbin, getting to have this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you for listening. This is Kate Durbin. And one more time, her new poetry collection is called Hoarders. It's very much a portrait of America. Um, 
and you know the the conditions of life here and kind of the isolation the loneliness the way that often in this country people have to deal with incredible trauma alone um and you know in some cases their only companions being stuff physical objects and items and not people so that kind of like privatization um, of life that we experience here to use a kind of a jargony term to describe it. Um, and really just loneliness, right, is a big, I think, part of uh, the project. But in terms of um, my process, it really developed over this book and the last book that um, I actually think I came on your show years ago for e-entertainment, which was also about reality TV shows. And what I do is I watch the show and take copious notes. Um, and in, in the case of Hoarders, the note-taking was particularly intense because, you know, there would be so many objects in a given shot for me to write down from the screen and, and just these, like, I call them, like, mush mountains of, of objects. Um, kind of fused together and so when I first decided to work on this I was really unsure if I would even be able to do it it was like can I enter this territory or not and um, then I really started to kind of warm up to the mush mountains and realize how evocative they really were and also how much um, how much of person's objects how much the objects that we have in our lives actually tell about us like how they can tell our story almost for us like if I were to disappear today like someone could come in my house and look at all my stuff and really weave a narrative I think about who I was as a person just based on those things that I had in my house um, but that's kind of the first part of the process is the note-taking uh, and then from there, with this book in particular, I didn't um, stay faithful to the show. I used those notes as material, but I created each poem more intuitively. Um, I changed names. I changed many other things. I did research beyond the show because I wanted each poem to really have its own kind of life um, that was beyond the show and also focused in different ways, I guess I would say. Um, and so that process was also very, very time consuming. Uh, but it was also a bit more like, I guess, how writing a poem would be from your own imagination or memory or something like that. It's just that I had all of this wonderful material to kind of use in that process. So, okay. So the additional research, that means you were uh, reading books uh, about hoarding. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I, I did read books about hoarding, but um, it was also about objects. <laughs> so um, different items that someone might hold on to. Uh, you probably noticed the Barbie poem. Um, I did a lot of research into Barbies and looking up different types of Barbies and uh, so every Barbie in that poem, I should add, is a real Barbie that exists. There's been some questions raised around that. People were like, there can't really be a Tippy Hendren in the birds Barbie with, like, birds attacking your body. Is there? Yes, that is a real Barbie. Every Barbie is real. Every Beanie Baby is real. Um, so 
I did a lot of that research too. I actually knew a lot about hoarding prior to this because there's hoarding in my family and a lot of mental illness in my family. And so watching the show was very familiar, actually. It wasn't um, some kind of experience that was startling or new to me in that regard. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of Barbies to research. Yeah, I thought, like, you know, it's like, it's a little bit tricky because there's something absurd about hoarding, uh, if I can put it that way. You know, like, the, just like the, the volume of objects and the, the, there's a craziness to it. You're like, oh my God, it's uh, like w this person barely has any room to move in their own home. And uh, I think as I was reading, I'm kind of alternating between horror and like deep sadness. And then there are these moments where you start to itemize at great volume. And to me, it felt like a little ventilation, like a little humor, like sneaking in, you know, when you start mm -hmm. to just enumerate, not enumerate, but just just belt out like 75 different Barbies. You know, like, right. it starts, right. you start to go, Oh my God, you know, I couldn't help it. Like at least like smile a little bit as I was reading because, uh, otherwise, I don't know. I don't know how to process this. You know, you have to right. find it's, it's like, I guess it's like life. You have to find ways to, to laugh, but, uh, it's exactly like that. That's how I see it too. I mean, I wanted the humor in the book to be like, all the absurdist literature, right? Absurdism is actually a, like a very deeply humanist form of literature, even though there's humor in it. The humor is like an existential humor. It's about like the human condition and how absurd it is that we're here at all and how absurd I'm thinking in my book, like how absurd that we have objects at all and that there is this many Barbies and, you know, and also just, you know, this question of like, how do you process loss? How do you process um, trauma? It's not an easy thing. So my hope in the book really is that there's no sense of like laughing at anybody, but just laughing at the absurdity of life because it is indeed absurd. And the absurdity of, you know, contemporary American life, like we deal with a lot of crazy bullshit in this weird country in this moment in time, you know, um, and I hope that some of that's captured through the book. Well, yeah, I think that there is some, I mean, I'm only speaking for myself, but I think when I have encountered hoarding in my life, I've only encountered it in person once when I was apartment hunting back when I was first moving to Los Angeles. And this woman was showing me around her, her apartment and there were like these narrow channels, you know, that you could kind of walk through just like you would, you know, you describe in the book or you would see on hoarders. Um, but otherwise it's the show, which I've seen, you know, only bits of, um, and I think there's some impulse in me to make fun of it. If I'm being honest and like, I've seen that in myself in the past mm. and it hasn't been pervasive or anything. Uh, I think this is common with people who don't suffer from this because it's so, it's so, um, visually overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But if I examine closely that impulse, I think a lot of it is fear. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't know. I think the interesting question is like, what am I afraid of? Am I afraid of these people who are hoarding or I'm afraid of what they might evoke in me? Right. And I also think about the fact that I or what it makes me think about is the fact that I often joke that I have like the opposite of the hoarding impulse. I just mm -hmm. want to get rid of everything. Right. I, I'm one of these people who wants to live in like an empty house with like all glass walls and polished concrete floors and 
like one chair. You know? like, right. And the, so I don't know. There's a lot to unpack, but I, I think that what I'm getting at is that hoarding works on people, not just the people who suffer from it, but the people mm -hmm. who are observing it, it works on a deep psychological level right? or maybe multiple levels. Yeah, I think it does for sure. And I, in my family, it has definitely had ripple effects outward. Um, and this is something also that the show explores how it affects, you know, family members. But one of the things that I was really interested in, in thinking about was, um, how it could ripple out even further and into society itself, not so much hoarding as a cause of problem in society, but more in the reverse where it's like, you know, how in a consumer capitalist society might hoarding be um, not directly tied, but in some form of relationship or association to, you know, the fact that we do live in a society where we're told if you're unhappy, buy things. If you're unhappy, watch things. If, you know, these sorts of solutions or bombs that are presented to us um, for our problems. Um, and we also just kind of live in a time where there's more objects than any other time in human history, which is something that really, I don't know why, it just um, really sticks with me. And I think about it all the time. And I thought about it all the time before I wrote this book. And now I think about it even more, because if you go back, you know, several hundred years, it, you know, you could hoard at any time in human history, but um, it's easier to do now because there's just so much stuff, right? Um, there's more trash than ever. There's more like items created just to be thrown away, single use products. Um, and then there's more, you know, collector's items like the whole list of Barbies. There's just way more stuff. We're surrounded by stuff. Um, Too much stuff. Yeah, I mean, of course, but also I I really like stuff. So like one of the reasons why I wanted to write this was I wanted to think about, um, you know, when people hoard, and I've seen this um, also in my family with the person who hoards, there can be a real sense of like wanting to rescue an item from such a sad fate as just being tossed in the garbage and there's something actually I feel a little bit anti-capitalist in that, where it's like, no, nothing can just be thrown away, which is actually ultimately true, right? Everything just ends up in a landfill somewhere. It's not thrown away. It's just kind of tossed. Um, and of course, you can recycle some things. But um, I thought that that was really interesting, this way of looking at objects uh, that was almost kind of loving or compassionate, this idea that, you know, things could be rescued or the desire to want to rescue things. And of course, in the book, I think that's also tied to the fact that many of the people in these stories feel that they themselves have been thrown away, right? Like by life, by other people, um, they have not been treated with the care that they deserve, or just life's bullshit that happens, the traumatic, you know, horrible losses that we all experience. And so to then kind of extend care to these inanimate objects, I don't know, there's something that really touches me in that um, pr 
process in relationship. It's like a a way of trying to process grief and deal with the fact that life is so brutal. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah, that makes that makes wonderful sense to me, and it's touching, you know, to think about how people might be trying to rectify certain traumas and injustices and brutalities like inflicted upon them by caring for something as seemingly like ordinary and mundane as like a flower pot or a right. like some sort of tchotchke, you know, to imbue right. that and to imbue that object with all of that meaning. It just feels, it feels like poignant and sad to me to think of all that emotion with maybe no place to go or they don't know where else to put it, you know? Right. Right. Um, so I want to talk like, you know, you go through this process where you are watching hoarders and taking notes and then doing additional research. And then you do all that, <laughs> yes. uh, which is a lot. And you have like a year or two. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And you have what I would imagine is a, a big stack of pages, mm -hmm. uh, like thousands and th tens of thousands of words. And what we end up with is this book, which is probably 30,000 words or maybe even less. It's poetry. Uh, I guess you would, would you call it, call it poetry? Cause there is a narrative. I do call it poetry. Yeah. Okay. I, Cause sometimes these, uh, you know, the categorizations can be a little bit flexible, but yeah, um, I mean, I'm not too picky about it, it's, but yeah. I feel like each one could defensively be called a short story almost, but it's definitely... Someone was calling them chapters on Goodreads. I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. But you do, I mean, you've done an, an admirable job of compression and an admirable job, I think, of developing a consistency of style throughout the book, um, consistency of form, and... I want to know more about how you arrived there because unless you had it all from the beginning, I cannot imagine you had how this thing looks now in your head from moment one. It had to be something that you arrived at via trial and error, correct? Well, this is actually the only time in my life this has happened for me with a book, but the form of the poems came the third day I worked on this project and until like the first two days I was like I don't think I can write this um so I guess it wasn't the third day because I had I forget what, exactly how it panned out but I um I think I did an experiment where I watched one episode and took the notes and then I was like okay what am I gonna do how do I show this relationship between a person and their objects through the form of the poems in a way that's enjoyable to read um and I think I struggled through like two days of trying to figure out the form and then it just came to me like a light bulb moment which again no normally never happens of course the writing still took years after that because I had a lot of other decisions I had to make um there's actually about 15 poems that didn't make it into the book and also the white space on the page, um, you know, there's about three lines per page. Um, that came very late in the process. And until I discovered that, the poems were actually much harder to read. Um, and so... They were too, it was know, too, I, too cluttered, right? We need to it was. It was weirdly too cluttered. <laughs> right. um, and I really didn't want to do this, like, thing of... What is that? I forget what the term is, but where I'm just kind of 
mimicking like the the intensity of objects on the screen in the form of the poems because I felt like that wouldn't have anything new or interesting to say or demonstrate. What I wanted to show was like each person picked each of these objects. They saved each and every one of them at one point in time for a reason and they have them there for a reason. And if you, when you watch the show and, and they go through their house, they will tell you about each one. They're like, you could do this with this object. This is where it came from. I mean, in their minds, they have this tremendous catalog and relationship to every single object there. So I wanted to demonstrate that too, you know, through each line of the poem. So I really needed to slow the reader down so that they could spend time with each each one. Um, but yeah, I, if that form hadn't come to me, I don't think this book would exist because it really held everything together. Okay, and so for listeners who might be having... Um trouble picturing the form that I'm talking about and that we're talking about. I'll take a stab at describing it and then you can clean up after me. Sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, you have a series of poems that are related to an individual person. So that's the main structural motif of the book. Each chapter or whatever you want to call it is a different hoarder. And you have in the various stanzas the juxtaposition of them talking and we see their speech in italics and then connected to that same line, like often not separated by any closing punctuation, you will then have a brief catalog of objects. It could be one, it could be several, but that's the, that's the main thing. That's the, the, the main uh, approach that that juxtaposition between the person speaking about their life, about their objects, um, sometimes about their futures or, you know, that kind of thing. And then the stuff of their lives. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. I would just add a few little things. Um, I call each one a, a portrait. Um, and I was thinking a lot about those, you know, funny old aristocratic portraits of like, someone with their prize horse or their prize chalice. But in this case, it's like, and they're, you know, like surrounding, surrounded by it. Um, but in this case, it's maximalist, right? So you've got 20 prize horses or hundreds. Um, and then in terms of the, the form where the, the dialogue kind of runs into the objects, what was really important with me there was um, that there was nothing separating them. There's no punctuate punctuation separating those two things so I really see them as fused it's as if the objects are finishing the person's sentence in a way um, and they're kind of you know speaking together about the conditions of this person's life and everything that they've experienced and wait was that the, was that the epiphany that you had on the third day was yes that, that was part of it I feel like we're talking about the bible I know. on the third day <laughs> well, hey <laughs> Listen, this is this feels biblical to me. The fact that you had this <laughs> epiphany this early in the game, and uh, in retrospect, you know, the benefit of hindsight, it's the most natural creative decision ever. Of course, you would do it that way, right? Um, that's it's, you know, it's perfect. It's exactly how it should be. So it's how it had to be. Yes, but there was still so much. I mean, each line was belabored, you know, and each arrangement of objects was so belabored in terms of what it 
what objects were there, their relationship to each other, and then also their relationship to what was being said. I mean, it's all very careful. It felt like painting or something. Um, and so, you know, that took, took its time. But then, of course, when you read it, it's, I think, hopefully in a good way, easy to, to picture it and move through it. Absolutely. I just didn't want to write something that was hard to read. You know, well, bless you, you know, and and like bless you for doing that, but also for reminding me because it's such like a elemental thing that is so frustratingly easy to forget is that if you're writing a book, you're writing to somebody. Yeah. Make it, you know, make it pleasant for them. That doesn't mean you make it enjoyable. I totally agree. It's something I feel very committed to forever now. Um, you know, I always appreciate writers who make it enjoyable for me. Well, and also, the, 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 I think the hard work should be incumbent upon the writer. Mm-hmm. You know, like what I always say is like easy reading is hard writing and vice versa. If a book is hard to read, that means it was easier to write because the author didn't really do all the work necessary. Right. And that doesn't mean it's dumb, you know, or dumbed down. It It just means that like, you know, your job is to clarify and simplify without losing the deeper meanings or the complexity. You know, at least right. That's, and that's... you can absolutely have the best of both worlds. Right. I totally think. Yeah. So one of the things I love about each portrait is the narrative quality that they have. Um, there's a real shape to each one. I imagine that was a lot of the hard work too, was getting to the point where that shape felt solid mm-hmm. um, because you're working in such a compressed, you know, streamlined manner you know, these things individually, each portrait is maybe what, 3000 to 5,000 words. If I knew numbers, I could tell you, but yeah, I mean, something (laughs) like that. They're short. They're short Mm -hmm. is the point. And so you're getting a full portrait of each person with like surprising, like dimensionality and depth, you know, a real sense of who they are. Um, not just in the immediate way, you know, not just like, oh, I live in this house and I'm obsessed with cats and I collect cats and I don't even get rid of my dead cats. They live in my freezer. And, you know, that's one of the more memorable uh, portraits that you paint. But, um, you know, you get you get more than that. You know, you hear little bits and pieces about past relationships, for example, or a failed marriage or an abusive parent or, you know, whatever it might be. And, um, you know, I think that's a big part of the artistry at work here. And a reason why these things are so effective and, and affecting is that, um, you're building a real person, you know, which I think can be hard to do when you're dealing with hoarders because the, the sensory experience like of encountering hoarding is so overwhelming. I was kind of getting at this earlier that I think it's such an emotional jarring thing to be confronted with, especially in the immediate sense Mm -hmm. that a lot of times the humanity can get lost behind all that. Right. Yeah. I mean, every person in this world has so many stories inside them. Right. And I think when it comes to mental illness, hoarding, maybe especially, but um, any form of mental illness, people tend to get flattened into their illness Um, and they're not always seen as complex individuals. Um, and so, yeah, that was something that was really important to me to do. 
um, with the people and also with their objects, right? Like you go into the house and it's just trash all of a sudden because it's in this big hoard. Um, but the idea was let's, let's slow it down, let's listen and see what emerges. How do you feel about the show Hoarders? That's a tricky question. Um, you know, it's been interesting to have the book come out and, and see it be read kind of as like an anti the show uh, book. Like it's it's like supposed to be rectifying the show's sort of um, presumed, I don't know, immorality and, and exploitativeness and things like that. And for me, um, I feel a little more complicatedly about it because I think that like all things in life, it's, it's not so simple. Um, but I will say, you know, it's a show that I would never have watched in the first place. So I am a big reality TV fan, but I like you know, Real Housewives, <laughs> and I like The Bachelor, um, and these kind of more, like, escapist shows, and a show like Hoarders is just, you know, kind of returning me to my family, um, returning me to certain forms of suffering that are difficult to sit with, um, so in many ways, writing about it was um, kind of an emotional challenge in that way and very difficult, actually. I was, like, crying for most of my watching experience. Um, that being said, you know, I, I think the show does some things well and other things not well, but I think something you mentioned earlier is probably the biggest challenge of a show like that, which is the visual shock that a person might experience and seeing a house that is full of objects in this way can immediately kind of flatten the person who's living in that house right into something um other and so that the viewer may then from that point forward tend to see that person in a dehumanizing way even if the show is trying to you know to tell their whole story and presuming to like help the person supposedly um and so one of the reasons why i wanted to write poetry about this topic was that i think there's a lot that a person can do in literature that the visual may be limited in regards to particularly with a topic like hoarding, which is, like you were saying, so visually kind of overwhelming um, to the senses at literally first glance, right? So is, I, I haven't seen the show in a long, long time, so I can't remember, but is it, is there like a rehab element to it? Is it like intervention? Isn't that right? They're trying to like yes. fix or, or help the person who's a hoarder. It's not just like, here's a tour of my house. Thanks for coming over. It's more like, you know, we're right. going to try to we're going to try to help this person. Often there'll be like a family member involved or something right. trying to trying to intervene. Right. Yeah. And that was actually a part of the show that I like the least. Um, not because I don't think that. Um, well, it's very complicated. Right. On the one hand, I think, you know, it's troubling that we live in a country where like for someone to receive help 
they have to go on a reality TV show. You or, know? Or, or like, or get a GoFundMe or whatever for their, yeah, yeah. Uh, you I know. Mean, that's like a whole, I mean, I would say that's a, a big part of the book, even if it's not explicitly stated, um, this idea of the privatization of distress, right? And how, when you're in trouble in America, you're on your own. You're just on your own, right? It's not easy to get help. Um, it's not even easy to get health insurance, right? Um, but I also feel like, you know, the support that is offered, the fact that that part is tacked on to the end of the show, it sort of does something to the viewer where they feel a little bit more comfortable with what they're watching in a kind of false way because there's this happy ending, right? And it's like, oh, I'm going to fix this individual person so we don't have to think as a society about, like, all these people by themselves in these hoarded houses and like, you know, we're not thinking about it as a social problem anymore. Um, and so that was something that I was really intentional about not including in my poems. I just wanted the people to be able to share their stories and what had happened to them without trying to kind of have this, I call it a Christian happy ending, you know, like, (laughs) um, which I feel like is just so American, right? Especially here in the U.S. Oh, so, um, so, so televisual too. I mean, that's I yes. think that really gets back to what you were saying about how poetry can do things with this um, subject matter that maybe television can't. I think there is incumbent upon television networks and producers. I mean, I you know the same can be said for narrative fiction or nonfiction even like there that. Uh, desire for some kind of resolution or happy ending is a strong one, especially if you want to get something on the air, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. I do want to say the one thing to the show's credit, which is that, you know, for me, I would be really disturbed if there were no shows and no stories and just no awareness about hoarding. Um, You know, I think in terms of any form of mental illness, we're finally kind of reaching a point as a society where we're talking more about these issues and so um well obviously i think the show could do certain things better in terms of presenting um these people's stories i don't necessarily think that it would be better if it didn't exist which you know i think is something that maybe a lot of people would think because I think that also makes people more comfortable, right? Oh, I don't have to look at that, right? And then the problem is just the door is closed. You look at the house from the outside and you have no idea what's going on in there, right? Sure. So let's talk about hoarding, like while, while we're talking about awareness of it, because as I was reading, I was thinking to myself, what is this? Why do I not know more about this? What causes this? Do, do we have it nailed down? Like, do doctors have a clear idea and understanding of what this is as a mental illness or as a, as a function of mental illness? So one of the things I'm trying to be really careful with this book about is, is not really going in that direction <laughs> um, because my book, you know, it's not a psychology book. Um, it's really a, a Book that is a collection of portraits about individual people and their experiences. So while I have some personal thoughts I could answer in regards to that based on the research that I've done, um, I just don't want to present myself as kind of like an expert on hoarding disorder. But one thing I will say is, you know, and I think you can see this throughout the book, 
that there's this relationship, this association between trauma sometimes and certain types of compulsive behaviors. Um, and, you know, that's something that really has become uh, more thoroughly researched and understood even just in recent years, the relationship between trauma and mental illness. Um, and it's something that, you know, can also even be generational, right? Um, and, and can also be influenced by our environment, our society, and our culture. So all of those elements were very present in my mind when I was working through this. Um, but again, I'm, you know, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm a poet. Um, so I'd be hesitant to talk too kind of definitively about hoarding from that point of view. I, I get it. And I think something that occurred to me as I was reading the various portraits is the fact that, you know, there might be uh, a medical assessment of hoarding disorder that does narrow it down. But even mm -hmm. if that were the case, which it may well be, there still remains a lot of variance from case sure. to case. It's not like, oh, you know, I had a parental trauma in my elementary school years and this is why I hoard and this is why everybody hoards like that. Right. You know, that That's could like be really oversimplifying a, a, a life and a, and also just part of being human. Right. Like there's so many mysterious aspects of being us. And I think even the way, you know, say it takes something like depression manifests, right? Like, I think we know now not to ever say, like, I only have depression because I lost my job or whatever, um, as if it's so cut and dry. Um, and of course, it, it can be, but it can also not be, right? Um, and I think that's just the case with, with anything, really. So I, I might be misusing this word, an ethnographic perspective, ethnography. That's like the study of your land or country or culture. Is that right? I could be. It misusing. sounds right, but I actually don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's good, let me put it in a way that I know we can both agree upon and feel good about, like okay. a, an American perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, something that your um, book made me think about was this country and how American this show feels and how. American hoarding feels. And I couldn't help but wonder, like, does hoarding exist everywhere? It Is, does. It, it does. really does. Yeah. Okay. So like, even if you're in like, you know, a much, uh, in, in a place of much lesser means from a material standpoint. Right. There are still people who might live in like a mud hut, but it's packed with stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, think about, think about it, right? There's a million reasons to hold on to things and they actually aren't that illogical right um you might need them but uh i think the reason why the book feels so american is because it's in america and you know the way um mental illness manifests in our lives is directly tied to the land we live on, the culture we live within. And there's not this like clean separation. And I actually think sort of the way that we've um, privatized and individualized mental illness in America makes it seem as if it just exists, like pops up inside individuals um, without any external relationship to society, other people, 
even like the things that you passed in Target that day, you know, and might have picked up off the shelf. But it's like we are our environments. We're a part of it. So, you know, if, if you were to write a book about hoarding literally anywhere else, it would look like that place, you know. Um, and it would have things to say about that place, which actually leads me to something that I wanted to say, which is, you know, this book has been read in many ways as being about consumerism. But I think, you know, hoarding doesn't necessarily have to be tied to consumerism. It just can be in certain ways here because we live in a consumer culture. But like you were saying, you could live, you know, in a hut in the woods and have other things that you might hold on to there. And it would have something else to say about your relationship to that space and time and place. I like what you said too, about the um, inextricability of ourselves and our environments. And yeah. what, what, what is this weird American thing? I don't know. I keep characterizing things as American. Maybe I need to broaden myself a little bit, but it feels so American. This, this loneliness, this isolation, this Horatio Alger up by the bootstraps, everyone's on their own kind of. Well, it is lonely. Yeah. And, and it is. I just, uh, I feel like there's that ethos and then there's capitalism mm -hmm. uh, and everything that it's become. And then there's also technology, I think, is a huge right. part of it as, as, as an outgrowth of contemporary capitalism. Right. And I, I, I mean, wish... there's even the way the suburbs are organized, like not to get too weirdly technical, but like the suburbs were, you know, not everywhere. Like if you were to live in um, Berlin, like your experience of space would be totally different because, you know, that city is older and it was designed and organized in a different fashion for you to encounter human beings in a different way. So if you live in the suburbs here, and I do, your house is physically isolated from other people's houses. So you feel lonelier in your house, you know, like all those features contribute to how you feel every day. I was reading something about, I think about like the wasted nature of Los Angeles. Like what a what, what a beautiful city it could be. And not, not that it doesn't have its positives, but from a human perspective, I was reading something about the way that urban design is handled. And there was some like, I want to say some famous urban designer person who said that you can judge the quality of a city's urban design by how many comfortable places there are for its citizens to sit. And I was like, man, there's no place to sit in Los Angeles. Even the bus stops, you know, the benches are mm -hmm. uncomfortable or they have those dividers so you can't lie down. And right. there's no like shared civic space except for a few spots, you know, yeah. and it bums me out because it didn't have to be that way. But for the, right. devel the developers who sucked up every single acre of land in the name of profit and Right. You know, you can't put that genie back in the bottle once it's out. You'd have to, I guess you could bulldoze a lot of different things, but it's just, you know, the logistics of doing all that now and kind of retrofitting the city with proper civic space is um, undoable, you know, or at least extraordinarily difficult. So Very it, difficult. Yeah. it bums me out. It bums me out too. I mean, obviously I love this city as well. I've lived here for a long time, but um, yeah, it's, it's very isolating in the way that it's organized and even like all the freeways <laughs> like 
they're horrible. They're life destroying, literally, like you could get hit. But also just being on them is like, what is this horrible thing? <laughs> I've become I've become a cranky old man with road rage as I've gotten older. <laughs> I didn't used to be this bad, but my kids, I think I think I notice it more because my kids make fun of me. My wife like tells me like you got to stop, but like <laughs> I get out on the on the road and I'm just I, I would be perfectly content to never drive a car ever again. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I am perfectly. I, I I'm happy on foot. I'm happy on my bike. I'm not happy in my car. Um, it's rough. It's rough. It's not the way to get around. We can do better. No. I don't understand people who are like people who are way into cars. I don't get it. Like Jay. I mean, if I'm driving like to Joshua tree. Okay. That's pleasant. You know, I get to look at the desert. Right. That's nice. Yes. But uh, I agree with you. The, the, I mean, I think Bernie Sanders, he came here and sat in some traffic and then like said, we're going to address this issue. There's a quality of life problem in Los Angeles for these residents having to sit in traffic all the time. Like he, he noticed it and <laughs> was like, this needs to be fixed. It's an emergency. Right. And it's not even difficult to discern. I mean, like why, like what I always dream of is a green belt that runs from downtown to the beach. Oh yeah. Like about a gorgeous. half, like, yeah, like a half a mile wide. <laughs> just blaze a trail through the city and then there's a bike path and maybe like a mm -hmm. train, you know, like a trolley or something and trees yeah. and like little ponds. I don't know, you know, like make it pretty. And like, That'd then be so nice. can we do that? And like the only way to do it, it seems like, and for people who have never been to Los Angeles, essentially every square foot of land has been developed. There, there's right. no open space. There's no place for this. So the only, only thing I've ever seen that qualifies as a true possibility in my mind is to do one of these parks that is built on top of a freeway. Mm. Have you heard of this? Have you seen the mock-ups for this on the 10 freeway where they, they're essentially, no. they're essentially going to build a roof over the 10 freeway, which runs from downtown to the beach. And then on top of that roof, essentially build a park, oh, um, which I, I like it. I'm down I, with it. I think it's very clever when people are like, we're going to go above, we're going to go below. <laughs> yes. Great. Great. <laughs> I'd go Give to a park. I just want some place to sit. I want to feel, and I want to feel too, like I am part of a community, like a human community. Right. I think one of the great things about a city like New York, for example, and maybe also one of its, uh, you could also qualify this as a negative, uh, perhaps in certain situations, but you go there and like the human energy of the place and the human contact of the place is so oh, striking. Yeah. It's very um, very wonderful. I've received so much support in New York for like every outfit I've ever chosen to wear there, like from perfect strangers on the street. They're just that that has never happened to me in New York, just FYI. <laughs> I just I love it. They really and they're they always will help you out too. I yeah. don't know. I think it's really nice. I, I don't I've never understood the narrative that New Yorkers are rude people. Oh no. Uh, I don't, like I find it to be the exact opposite. Like they might be blunt or like direct with you, but I prefer that. I, I don't have any problem yeah. with it. And I, the same is true with uh, French people. Like oh this, yeah. <laughs> people talking about how French people are snotty assholes. Like I, you know, maybe some of them, but like, that, I don't know. These generalizations drive me crazy. In the United States, you know, we're like grinning ghouls all the time. We're always smiling. And I'm always aware of this when I travel to other places because people don't just walk down the street smiling like I do. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Well, and they also don't speak in these superlatives, you know, about how are you doing? I'm wonderful. I'm great. I'm fantastic. It's like, mm-hmm. no, you're not. Like, let's tone it down. You know? <laughs> I think some other people from other places, not everyone, obviously, but some people find this charming about us, though, that we're so enthusiastic or I guess. can be. I, guess. I mean, I think, listen, I'm all for we're being, we're being very general here about all people, but <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's make some proclamations. Let's make some proclamations <laughs> about humanity. But uh, I, I think it's good to err on the side of optimism, you know, like to round up. If somebody asks you how you're feeling and you're somewhere between good and great, then fine. Say great. You know what I'm saying? Like round up. Maybe you'll get there. I like but that. Round I, up. I think that the there's something there could be something kind of manic and sad and dishonest about that kind of languaging, especially when it's done maybe more unconsciously or like reactively, like we're doing it because we feel like we need to. Well, I grew up in fundamentalist Christianity and that was like a huge feature of evangelical Christianity is you're always doing good. You know, God's working in my life, even if you're like, dying of cancer or whatever, you know, you just always had to have this smile on your face and say everything was good. Cause otherwise it was like, you weren't appreciating, um, I guess the fact that you were saved from hell or whatever. Um, and, and I remember it being very burdensome and, and, and strange. I mean, for me, like I was, just the same person I am now. And I remember in Christianity, I was perceived as being like a very negative person. And then when I left Christianity, it was like, no one ever saw me that way anymore. It was just because I didn't live up to the like extreme, like happiness you were supposed to project all the time. Uh, That sounds weird. Sounds exhausting. (laughs) It was exhausting. What was it? It was just fund like what evangelical fundamentalist mm-hmm. Baptist. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. I mean, it was evangelical Christian, but um, my parents' belief system and and like the churches we were involved with were very fundamentalist. No one calls themselves fundamentalist. Like I'm calling them that now, coming out of it. But um, yeah, very strict adherence to the Bible and you know a lot of rules, things you couldn't do. Um, it's kind of like cult adjacent in some ways, like I was pulled out of school for a lot of my childhood. Um, cause my parent, and I went to a Christian school before that, but they were like, it's not Christian enough. So, you know, I wasn't taught like science. I wasn't taught about evolution. I was taught like all this propaganda about creationism and yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. Yeah. I know. I have some familiarity with that. Um, familiar, like not in my immediate family, but you know, relatives and it's, it's a part uh, of this country for sure well and i mean I, I never i didn't really expect to to go here but i mean it seems like uh since we're talking about it you know we're talking on the day that roe v wade has basically been allowed to expire by the supreme court right like texas oh. just yeah i don't know texas basically I passed it. the news today oh, good for you but it's like i happened to glance and it's like you know it's all the it's all the rage on uh, Twitter and whatnot. And um, I I guess like having been raised in that uh, church and in that environment. And then we're also here at the end of the, you know, the war in Afghanistan with the Taliban kind of reassuming control of that country. Mm -hmm. There's some like some scary ironies to me 
in the way that we can characterize a place like Afghanistan and the Taliban versus how we see ourselves uh, in this moment and with like certain, I think, really limiting and intolerant elements of our society coming to the fore and certain like really like hardcore ideological strains uh, right. asserting themselves on the entire country. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? I don't know. It's just like, it's, yeah. like, it's hard to know what, how does this end? You know, this could, this feels like it could get very grim to me if it's allowed to continue because um, there's just too much certainty in some right. people about how they see things and how they believe everybody else needs to see things. Oh, that's a perfect way of putting it. I agree. There's nothing worse than certainty. And that was absolutely what I experienced growing up in that environment was this like, you know, certainty about religion and about life and about morality. And I think it is something that I'm really grateful to art for is this like space where we can be uncertain and we can admit that we're uncertain and raise questions and just look at life in a different way without having to prescribe all these answers. Um, you know, well, and I mean, and like, I think uh, like adjacent to that, it's also a place where it's okay to ask questions and like, right. I wasn't raised in evangelical Christianity, but I was raised in Catholicism. And one of the reasons why I always resisted it was because my questions were not tolerated well, right. Or answered well. And you and, know, you're in a bad situation when that's the case when yeah. questions are shot down yeah yeah i mean even as a kid you're like wait a minute you know they can't it's not okay to ask this question like how this right. is a, seems like an obvious question to me you know why like if god's always watching and he's like super 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 loving and nice and i just asked him i actually did i used to do this in church i'd be like would you just shoot like a purple beam of light through that skylight <laughs> just just so I can like know you're there. And I'm like, this guy's <laughs> supposedly the nicest, most powerful, all, you know, all knowing God in the world. And he won't even shoot a purple beam of light through a skylight for a like eight year old. Just or at shit. least make the Virgin Mary appear on a piece of toast. Something. Give me something. You know, right. I'm just a kid, but it's, you know, obviously I don't qualify. God's silence was deafening. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a lot. I, I have, um, I have issues with it and I feel like too often religious ideology is part of the problem, but I also feel like religious community could potentially be a big part of healing what ails us. Sure. Um, like I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush You know, I have complex feelings about it. And I, uh, I love my family, you know, like I love family, that I might not agree with, you know, right. on, on things like this, but yeah. It, and you uh, don't want to dehumanize anybody, right? It, everybody's life is complex and their relationship to religion. is complex and, um, nothing is that simple. I mean, religion is something that humans have done for so much of our history, right? It's like a huge part of being human, which isn't to say that someone needs to be religious. I'm, I'm an atheist, but, uh, I was, I felt like in leaving that environment that I wanted to retain some sense of, I don't know if respect is the right word, but just acknowledgement of that 
reality that it is a big part of being human you know yeah i mean like listen it's been going on for a long time and a lot of different permutations like people trying to make sense of what we are and why we're here right but i will there's just something here's the thing about it is that for all the love and affection and goodwill that exists between family members or friends or whoever it might be that you know one person is a non-believer one person's like super into it i've always found like the 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 weird tension that underlies any relationship between person a who is a non-believer and person b who is certain that person a is going to burn in hell for eternity right yeah there's <laughs> like, something about that that's really unacceptable yeah you're just <laughs> you like know, it's insulting and it's hard it's hard to yeah work with that it's hard to work with that. So um, I want to talk to you about the meaning of objects, like to turn this back to your book and to hoarding and to the ways in which people who have hoarding disorder imbue the items in their homes with all of these different meanings. Um, I guess well, and like- I don't think that's just specific to... I think that we all imbue our objects with meaning. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, because what it did when I was reading your book was that it made me reassess the objects in my life. Right. And I'm like, I was starting to, because like, I think it can be unconscious. I can like breeze through my life and walk past my refrigerator and not think twice about it. But then if I actually stare at my refrigerator, it's all of a sudden I could be thinking about my family and like some memorable meal that we had or whatever it is, you know, and a lot can come out of an object. So I guess like a a question that I I had when I was reading the book and thinking about people who hoard is if there is like a common thread that runs between people who do this with respect to how they assign meaning to objects. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do they assign meaning differently or are there, commonalities in the ways in which they assign meaning i think it's quite varied but i again i would emphasize that i don't think that that's unique i mean i think we all assign various meanings to the objects in our lives and we also have emotional relationships to objects um you know depends on what it is of course but i don't think that there's any person who only has a purely utilitarian relationship to the objects in their life. It's way more complicated than that. And one of the things that came through for me working on this book was simply that, that revelation, like, oh yeah, you know, this is, this is part of being human, part of the fact, part of why we created them in the first place objects in the first place, right, is in order to have relationships to them. I mean, think even of like certain companion type objects that you might have, like when you're a child and you have all your stuffed animals, right? You consider those to be your friends. Um, They're not just something that you're like, I am, this is my development tool, (laughs) 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 right? Um, and I just, I, I, I think that that line between, and here I'm going to start sounding weird, but I'm just going to go for it. That line between like animate, inanimate, you know, tool and human is maybe blurrier 
in reality than we give it credit for. And maybe the blurrier, the better, honestly, because I think a big part of capitalism and the problem with capitalism is this idea that objects exist only to serve us as like a temporary thing that we then toss out um, without any responsibility toward the materials that were made that that existed in order to create that object the process through which it was created and then the object itself once it exists right so i'm not saying that we need to treat objects like animals or something well we don't we don't treat animals that well either (laughs) we don't right and that's another thing that you know kind of came through for me in working on this book was this idea that in a capitalist culture you throw away objects and you throw away people right this like dehumanization this i called it the objectification of objects which i know sounds very confusing but this idea that um anything could be thrown away might be kind of a problematic way of thinking right like if we can see our objects and appreciate them more then maybe we'll be more careful with them and with the earth they've come from and with the other people that we encounter as well well and just i mean I go back to this a lot on this show in different conversations and in different contexts, but it just always feels like it bears repeating that one of the fundamental ills, as I see it anyway, is that human beings and maybe American human beings to a greater degree view themselves as separate from the the rest of phenomena. Right. (laughs) And we are caught in our individual conventional identities when the deeper truth and the deeper reality is a lot weirder and a so lot much weirder, a lot less um, isolated, you know, like, we, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of like a, I, they're different. I don't think it's exclusively Buddhist. I guess I see it through a Buddhist lens, but I bet you there's a Christian lens. You could see, you could see it through too, but it, the sooner we can get to the do a place where we realize that everything inter is and right. that nothing can exist by itself alone, nothing and no one can exist by itself alone, the sooner I think we'll start making wiser choices right? Uh, as people and as stewards of the planet and its animals and one another, you know, all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. we just seem caught in this individualist outlook that is at odds with, in my view, deep reality. Yeah, I agree completely. It is, it is weird. It's hard to put into words, but I think intuitively it's something we can tap into and perhaps, you know, children tap into it more than us as adults who've been kind of conditioned in this consumer society. I mean, I think about my little brother when he was little, he would apologize to like furniture when he bumped into it you know and my mom had to be like oh look that the couch is fine like you know like you didn't (laughs) hurt the couch but there's just such a courtesy there you know like oh excuse me couch like you deserve some respect too right um and I think there's something inherently troubling about having too many objects for us all to take care of, even collectively, right? If we, if there's so many that we can't take care of all the Barbies, then maybe there's too many Barbies. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, maybe we need to like slow it down and, and just have a few. <laughs> yeah, just dial it back on the Barbies. <laughs> Although I do actually, I really love all the different different kinds of Barbies. Well, and yeah, I mean, it, what it makes me think about, you know, that one in particular, but really all of them is the level of care, you know, like I, I think maybe a caricatured perception of hoarding is that it's just a person with tons of shit and they don't really discern. It's just like they just right. want lots of stuff. But the portraits that you're painting, and I think this is an accurate understanding, is that each item matters to these people. Right. Usually, at least, you know, right? Like there's, there's like right. real, dis- there's real discernment from object to object and real care, right. even if it looks like haphazard and like sort of junk piled. Well, it's uh, too much to care for, you know, so it's, that's not working. It's not functional, but we don't really live in a functional society anyway. So I think anyone struggling to function in America, like, of course, makes sense, right? Um, yeah, the person, well, one of the people in my family who hoards, um, they're always rescuing electronic appliances. And they have, you know, refrigerators actually dating back to the 1940s. Um, and they're like, you know, well, that's still a good refrigerator. Like, we could use it. And there's a real care there, like you said, for that refrigerator's value and the idea that it doesn't need to just be tossed out because it's old or something like that. Um, And this is also a person who's very caring to other people too, which I think is interesting. Um, But of course, there's also the problems that come along with having all that too many refrigerators in your house <laughs> that don't work. <laughs> right, right. Um, and yeah, like a, that brings up a question I had while reading was the way and the ways in which people who hoard do or do not function in society. I think, mm-hmm. you know, with my limited understanding, I would be like, how can this person hold a job? Or these people are just at home all day with their stuff. But you, I'm thinking of one portrait, like the two, the married couple, the teacher, mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the kind of bibliophile hoarders who are yes. really into books. It sounded like, if I'm remembering correctly, one of them was a teacher, right? Yeah. And was working and going to work and then coming home to the hoarding house. And right. it just made me think, like, wow, this could be somebody that you see on a daily basis. Oh, absolutely. Could have I been... think most of the time, yes. I mean, and that's the case with any mental illness, right? Or most of them. Um, and it goes back to that idea of the complexity of a person, right? Hoarding might be part of someone's life, but not all of their life. And um, that can be the case with with anything. And then there can be also situations where um, they might be struggling more than that and not be able to work or, um, you know, have other challenges they're dealing with. But, yeah, it, it just, I think, depends on the person. Okay. And I, I know you're not a doctor or a psychologist, but in your research and in your experience with this, like how, how does a person heal like from, from this, like there are underlying psychological distresses. It's like trauma, you know, trauma therapy. Once you get to that underlying suffering and you treat it with some talk therapy or meds or whatever it might, some combination thereof, like then people will eventually lose the compulsive. Um, I am behavior. so not answering this one, but, um, <laughs> You know, I, but I will also say, you know, this was a, a question I, I really would love to just leave open because I think 
you know, the point of this book is really about understanding these people's stories, the relationship to objects in their lives, and also to weave a wider portrait of the conditions of life in the United States right now. Um, and to kind of sit with that without jumping to the healing, <laughs> I think can generate a lot and may in fact lead to that moment of understanding where there could be healing. But I also think, you know, some, this is like something that I think in the United States we hate to hear, but not everything can be healed, you know, not everything can be fixed. And especially in terms of trauma, um, while there can be, there can be healing, it may not be complete, it may not be total, it may not, you know, you can't fix that life is filled with grief and loss and difficulty and that, you know, if you've been hit by the, hit by a truck, right, and your legs have been severed, that's just what you have to live with, you know, after that experience. So I guess, you know, for me, I just really didn't want to jump to healing with the book because I really think we have a hard time in the United States. Not everyone, of course, but we can have a hard time as a culture with just sitting with the reality of something without trying to fix it or at least have it be perceived as fixed so we don't have to feel uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, you talked earlier about how you were crying while you were watching Hoarders and I can relate to that. Uh, the last thing, like I have a child with disabilities. Mm -hmm. It's like my deepest wound, you know, my, as you can imagine, like parental sadness and just like worry and all the, all of it, just like it hurts. And somebody was like wanting me to watch some documentary about this, you know, dis disability and stuff. And I was like, Oh, I can't, it's not that it's not like a worthy movie, but like to actually right. go into like, I guess what I, I want to say is like, there's something kind of heroic to me that you put yourself through that, um, to build this art because I can, that must've been grueling is the point, you know, having real personal experience with this and having family history and I don't know, maybe some people can do it. Maybe for some people it's like, okay to sit there and sort of like, yeah, it's hard. yeah like, uh, what's the word, you know, when you're knifing the wound <laughs> you know like, right, it's right. not something most people want to do and yeah it's um, not cathartic it's not healing it's not cathartic at all if anything it's like re-traumatizing or whatever um but but how can you okay i get that it's not cathartic but i also get the notion that you the way through is through yes like there was there any for lack of a better word, medicinal benefit to sitting with it and, and looking carefully at it versus. Yeah, I think so. I do. I mean, I think that sitting with someone when they're going through something hard is a form of love. And I think that that's something that I definitely experienced through the process of writing this book and it in very, in ways I didn't expect circled back to my family and some of the things that we've been through, not just with hoarding, but also there's been a lot of substance used in my family and 
heroin and just really serious problems for years and years. And I felt in some ways that I was writing toward them. And it's something that's been really tough for me to even process or deal with, you know, and it's one of those things, like, I feel like I'll carry that with me just to my grave, because it's like, you go through things like that. And it just doesn't, it's just a part of you from then forward, right? But yeah, I mean, I don't even know how to articulate what was medicinal about it. And it was hard too, and difficult too. But I do think yes there was something in the process of working on this book that felt like I don't know an acknowledgement a sitting with that I feel like the world could use more of perhaps yeah yeah I mean I think like I think of weightlifting strangely enough and how like when you you get stronger by breaking down muscle mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? like you're tearing muscle and it hurts and it's miserable but then that's how you build up muscle and like maybe you don't necessarily heal but you get stronger or like the scar tissue gets stronger yeah um, and then i really love this notion of how paying careful attention and being being present for somebody is an act of love like you don't need to diagnose them right. you don't need to cure them you don't right. need to do anything but bear witness to them and be there for them in like bodily form, you know, to be truly there with them is an act of love. Absolutely. Um, maybe, maybe the most elemental act of love, uh, you know, maybe it's better to be quiet. <laughs> so certainly that's the case for me. My wife is just like, just be there and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, there's a quote that I want to read back to you from your book and it's from Las Vegas, Ronnie or Ronnie from Las Vegas. However, you know, this is the portrait. He's and epic. Say again. He's epic. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't, can you actually, can you give people just a thumbnail of the portrait so that they can get just a, a general sure. sense of Ronnie? So Ronnie collects Las Vegas memorabilia. He lives in Las Vegas and he, is or at least was quite wealthy so he managed to buy up all kinds of marvelous things from casinos and actually in las vegas a very common and sad consequence of capitalism is that they're always like breaking down casinos and building new ones so like las vegas is always being erased um so like he's kind of preserving its history actually in some ways he's got all kinds of stuff he's got like giant T-Rex replicas, signs, neon signs from the casinos. He's got like a spacecraft from the (laughs) Apollo mission. Um, Really this museum, but it's also, of course, taken over its whole house and multiple houses he purchased next door and caused lots of problems in his life too. Okay. Okay. And, Something he says, because I get uh, the feeling he was up in age or like getting there. Yeah. Is he says, quote, I made it so you can't help but remember me. Yeah. And I, that might even be the last line in the portrait. It and is. It's heartbreaking and kind of a perfect, again, these are, these portraits have great narrative shape. Mm-hmm. And it really, that made him make sense. And. I think maybe there's some el- you know, aspect of this to greater and lesser extents in all of us and certainly in all people who hoard. There's like some desire embedded within the compulsion 
to perpetuate themselves or to find identity in these objects mm-hmm. to build a kind of a museum. I um, mean, in his case, to achieve immortality, right? To, to I, something I found really interesting in some of the objects that he held on to, um, which one was like a replica of the atomic bomb, but then others were like the pyramids. So it was like the most remarkable things that humans had ever created right um as well as the most deadly and destructive and that kind of um dualism in the objects i found really interesting it was like these are immortal objects right these are things that will outlast all of us uh, even if it's just in memory like memory of the atomic bomb for example um, and, you know, Ronnie is just a man. He's mortal. He's nearing the end of his life. And it's hard to contend with that, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's something also a little bit built into consumerism, this dream or promise that may it's like, obviously, it's not like on the label of, you know, what you buy, but this idea like you buy this you will live forever. Like this is like you're, you're stocking up to make your environment set. Right. Um, and I'm not totally sure how to articulate that, but I do think that there's something kind of in capitalism that is very much in denial of death, loss, all those sorts of things. And, and particularly if we think about it in context of like what we're doing to the earth in order to, create all of this stuff right like the devastation um that's enacted on the earth in order to just make tons and tons of shit casinos well because i don't know about casinos (laughs) (laughs) i'm just thinking of all the different casinos like all the shit i mean just for those alone i feel like you've left a pretty big mark on the world just to build those things you know yeah but you know what comes to mind uh, as you're saying all this is the notion of happiness mm-hmm. because this is what we all want. We want to be happy and not suffer. And people who are hoarding somewhere in there, you know, in this act is a search for happiness or a belief that these objects are delivering happiness to them. And I, I, you know, it's easy to start to, I think it's easy for us to like offhandedly define happy, like what happiness is for ourselves. Like, well, to be happy is to not be sad or Mm -hmm. to be happy is to be, you know, surrounded by friends and family or to have, uh, you know, a steady job or all these different ways that we might define it. And the best definition for happiness that I've come across at least recently is, um, to be free from wanting mm-hmm. like happiness is to be free from wanting. And I think what breaks my heart when I think about hoarders is that I don't know how a person who's locked inside of hoarding disorder could be free from wanting. Right. Do, do you know what I'm saying? And, and, and then Although I think I read somewhere recently that a person actually cannot be happy if they don't, desire something like the desire is actually what gives us vitality in life like the striving towards something and not the arrival not the achievement of it which is why like to go back to our conversation around religion like 
even as a child, I would find the idea of heaven very boring. I was like, what are we going to do? Like, you just have everything. <laughs> You're just like sitting on a cloud. Like, I, I don't know. You know, and... it's like like an eternal family reunion. Like, do we really are we sure about this? You know. Like... <laughs> so you know, I think we may think we want to be free from wanting, but actually, wanting is what what is was life. Like that's what drives us forward. That's what you know is the desire that we're always moving toward certain things, well, whether maybe... it's goals or people or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I was going to say, like, maybe it's the, it's the choosing carefully what, what you desire, you know, and like, I think there's always some kind of like volition or something driving us, but it's that sense of lack or yeah, you know, that sense of, I need more. That is what makes us miserable. Sure. Um, or just the desire to stop time, right. And loss and not to kind of stay still and, and. I think that can be because it's not possible a very difficult space to be within. Um, and I, and I can see that in some of these stories, um, you know, even just the desire to, you know, be in the house and just have the house kind of closing in around you. So what is, what's up with me wanting to get rid of everything? Like the, my read on it psychologically is that like, it's like fear of death, but also like impatience, like, okay, it's all going to go. So let's just get rid of it now. Like, yeah, that. maybe there's a, like a feeling you're avoiding, like a discomfort with <laughs> attachment with, um, you know, the messiness of life. I don't know. Or yeah. And then also like a cluttered, busy mind and feeling maybe like hypersensitive to my environment. I do feel better when I'm in like a clean, sure, uh, like tidy, open space versus right. like, but I've read somewhere and I'm very susceptible to articles like this that pop up on the internet that <laughs> like people who can have like a really messy office, you know, those people yes. like there's just shit everywhere, but they kind of know where things are. Right. Those people tend to have a higher intelligence than people like me who want to have like you know just like the austere. they say messiness is associated with creativity I've, okay i've heard that but well i'm kind of messy i don't know i just i like the idea i think of the super clean orderly environment more than i right that more than i practice it i mean i think i'm somewhere in the middle if i'm looking around i mean this garage is a little bit of a hodgepodge it's not my it's certainly not my ideal like imagined empty cell <laughs> it's hard to fully empty out i mean even if even if you do like then you're like oh there's ants and there's dust and there's lint and there's so many things there's always something yeah. there's always something um thomas kincaid i know <laughs> i this is a small brush stroke in your book this is not Thank something you for bringing him up i'm actually very delighted okay because i could <laughs> These are the kinds of things I would notice in a book. But Thomas Kincaid, I want to say, appears two or three times. Yes. And, and not in the same portrait. It's not right. all one portrait, but there are Thomas Kincaid appearances. And I guess for those who are listening, we might benefit from hearing who Thomas Kincaid was. 
he died, right? I want to say he, he died. He did, yeah, not too long ago. Yeah, and that was a complicated life. I feel like that's worthy of like a Netflix documentary or something. For but... sure, yeah, I would totally watch that. I mean, when I was a Christian, he was so revered, and you know, that's how I first learned about him was because when I went to my fundamentalist college, you know, art was very censored and oppressed because, of course, art asks questions and doesn't just provide, you know, answers about um, life and morality. But Thomas Kincaid, of course, was very celebrated as, you know, the artist. He, well, I guess we should explain to people what, what he did, but he's known for these paintings that are these, like, very idealized I would call them like hallmark paintings or something of like cottages and lighthouses aglow with light. Um, and then he also did these Disney portraits too, which are in his style of like Snow White and Cinderella. Um, and then in an even more exciting twist, Target ran a series of puzzles based on his paintings. Um, so... I bought the Cinderella one personally. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if, I don't think I, my Christian, like super Christian relatives were the ones who introduced me to the work of Thomas Kincaid. Yeah. He, he was a Christian and then it turned out he had, you know, other sides to him as well. Yeah. What was the story? I forget. I, I want to say I read about it. In like a I profile. believe he had substance use problems um, that he kept quite hidden and I'm sure, well, I don't want to make presumptions about his life, but in those in a Christian environment, it can be difficult to talk about those um, sorts of struggles because the expectation is that you just don't have them. Right. Well, and he was also like a very, very successful artist uh, commercially. Very like, wealthy, yes. Yeah, like those paintings sold bundles and he licensed all those puzzles and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like he was right. maybe the most commercially successful painter of his time. Is that right? something like I, that? It sounds right. I mean, yeah. he was very rich, yes. <laughs> but he shows up in a couple, two or three of the portraits, which I, I'm i trying to think of, 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 were there any other objects that made multiple appearances? You know what I'm saying? Maybe there yeah. were. Oh, there were a few others, but now it's kind of slipping my mind. I mean, I was I was really interested in weaving him through a few times. And then also, um, oh, I think Paul Revere appears a few times, like as a Pez dispenser and then as a garden statue. Oh, I was right. kind of looking at these objects that, for me, represented Americana or like, in the case of Paul Revere, you know, thinking about traumas that might connect back to... American history and colonization and how kind of capitalism um, really can be traced back, you know, pretty far into our history. And then also thinking of like with Thomas Kincaid, for example, about how in his paintings, they really exemplify this idealized home, right? This is the perfect home that you're supposed to have. It represents the American dream. It's this, you know, beautiful, perfect space um and then of course that contrasts with the reality of many people's lived experiences to say the least yes <laughs> and then i was also interested in art that could be like 
the way that, you know, many people in our country experience art is not in a fine art context, right? It is through like a Thomas Kincaid puzzle at Target or a print of a Monet that they hang on their wall. And I feel like you don't normally see objects like that in poems, but they're like the stuff of our world and the stuff of our life. And I just, I mean, the biggest struggle I had in this book was I like, I was like, I want to, I want to rescue everything too. Like I want to bring all the flavors of Oreos into this book. I want to, all the Keurig cup flavors, like all of these things that you never see in poems, right? Because poets are trying to write something timeless a lot of the time and, you know, kind of push the contemporary out. But I'm like, this is our world. This is our life. Like this is what people are experiencing in the everyday. Like that's their cup of coffee every morning is this Keurig cup, you know? And so I wanted everything in there and I had to sadly let many things go. I always say my biggest sorrow is there's not a minion in the book and I just, <laughs> so especially like a minion Christmas lawn ornament would have been oh, just wonderful. But I do like the minions. They are an enjoyable <laughs> creation. <laughs> I love them. I've never seen the movies actually. I just kind of obsessed with them as symbols of something. All right. Well, I think this is a, a wonderful book. I was going to say, too, the whole Paul Revere thing. It also kind of reminds me of how you're kind of sounding the alarm in this book. Maybe, mm. I'm, maybe I'm reaching, but maybe. The I love re that. Yeah, right. You're like, I mean, Paul Revere sounded the alarm and, you know, the midnight ride or whatever. I right. feel like this is kind of your midnight ride, um, you know, sounding the alarm about late capitalism and American isolation and toxic individuality <laughs> among right. other things, you know, but it's a, it's a really, you know, all, all of that said, it is a pleasure to read. Thank it's poignant. You. It's sad. It's funny. It's kind of all the things you want from literature. And it's also really creative. Like it, you know, the whole conceit of the book, the way that it was born of this process of watching this reality show, um, down to this creative epiphany that you had where the form and style of the book sort of locked into place early, you know, it can make, makes it feel to me like it was meant to be, you know, like this is a book that, uh, I don't know, maybe in the way of, of, I guess it's the, maybe not, not all good art is born this way, but it feels like it should be born this way. Where on the third day you get the, <laughs> you know, Thank um, you so much. That's so nice to say. Yeah, no, but it's just like, I think so. I think when that stuff happens, it's a really nice, if nothing else, it's a really nice affirmation that you're on the right track, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. kudos to you for doing all the, the hard work because the way that it reads it, it seems effortless. And, um, that's to your credit because I know you see how, how long did it take you to write this thing? Several years. Several years. Of course, I wasn't only working on it exclusively during that time. I had to do jobs and make money and all those other things. But yeah, I mean, I always say like the hard way is the right way. Like if you want to write something that's about paying attention, you really can't skimp on the like slow meditative process of that. And like, you know, I had to look up every Barbie. I had to look up every Keurig cup. It's, I can't just make them up or skip that part, you know, and I had to sit with people's unhappiness and listen to their story and not, not skip through all that. Um, and, but, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm now trying to recall if I said this earlier. I know we talked about the discernment of um, the discernment between objects by the hoarders mm-hmm. and the care that they take with each object. But right. y- for you, as the artist, a mm-hmm. huge part, maybe the central part of this book, is f- forcing yourself to sit not only with these people but with these objects and giving each object careful attention. Right. It kind of sifting through the rubble because right. I think it can be really easy as, as a casual observer to look at a hoarder's trove of hoarded objects and to see it as a monolith or just like a big junk pile. Right. And you're kind of resisting that impulse and you're saying, right. no, we're going to look at each thing carefully right. and name it. Right. And maybe extrapolate if there's something to be extrapolated from what the person said or did or something else that's related to it in the environment. But mm-hmm. that careful attention, I think, is what gives this book a lot of uh, like it's um, moral force. Mm. Thank you. I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, it had to be that way. That was the only way, you know. And I feel like anyone who goes on the show orders and is generous enough to share their experience with viewers despite you know the vulnerability of that deserves in return care and listening and careful attention um and you know one of the things that i found sort of hard to watch in the show was the endings of these episodes where they take all their stuff away and it's just so fucking sad because it's like if i always felt like they don't understand what they're doing to this person i'm not saying that you know i'm not i'm not speculating in any way shape or form about like what a person in trouble needs in terms of like the help you know and i and i can say with my own family dealing with you know interventions for substance use it's incredibly chaotic and painful and difficult those processes that you go through together as a family you know to to deal with all of that and it's very messy and and you do often feel like you're hurting someone to take away you know their their drugs or whatever but um i just thought you know each object means something to this person let's let's look at that you know and listen to that and Instead of seeing it as just weird or something, you know, because I, I don't think it's weird. I don't think hoarding is weird at all. I think it makes sense. Well, I hope I didn't sound like a monster earlier when I talked about how I could sometimes, I don't know, laugh too much, at, you know, or just. No, kind of... I don't think so at all. I mean, I think this is the way reality TV functions, right, is to it's this lowbrow genre of entertainment where that's part of the view, what the show is wanting us to do is like see ourselves as, as different from the people we're watching on the screen. Right. Um, and it's also like the, the speed, you know, because it's like I said, like I, I can remember watching maybe an episode or like bits and pieces, but most likely I was like flipping channels Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like driving by, you know what I'm exactly. saying? Like this, yeah. the speed with which these encounters happen and the time that I've spent grappling with this is so minimal, you know? So it's kind of just like a, a rubbernecking kind of effect where you're like flipping channels, Boy. driving by, you look at it, yeah. you just go, Oh, like, my God, that's the living room, like crazy. And then you flip to like sports center or whatever it is. 
Right. And so I think I what I appreciate about this book is that it slowed things down and it brought it into focus and it made me sit with it and it humanized these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what literature should do. So kudos to you. Thank you. And I also just want to say, I think it's a very normal human reaction to see a living room packed full of things and go, whoa, like, I think that's just <laughs> normal. Okay. Good. You know? I'm not a monster. Thank God. <laughs> whoa, it is whoa. <laughs> yeah, it is whoa. It's like, I mean, if nothing else, like just from a visual aesthetic, like it's sensory overload. Like It's, it's intense. Okay. Yes. It's intense. It's intense. Yeah, that um, does not make you a monster. <laughs> okay, phew. I've lived to see another day as a non-monster. Um, <laughs> well, I've enjoyed talking with you. And, oh, you know what? I got to ask you one more question just because um, yes. I feel like it deserves mentioning. Is COVID and hoarding. Mm. I mean, we talked about isolation. We've talked about, you know, the ways in which when we're suffering, we're sort of on our own in America. I don't think anything in my lifetime has brought this um, to the fore more intensely than COVID. You know, uh, so many people have suffered so much. So many people are suffering right now quietly um, amid all of this. And we have no idea. You have to, as you were working on this book and seeing it through to publication, you had to have given some thought to how COVID and hoarding were relating to one another. You mean the the toilet paper incidences, the toilet paper hoarding that people were talking about? Well, I mean, no, I mean that, but also just like people who hoard being isolated in their Mm -hmm. homes with their objects and like maybe not having the outlet of like, hey, I'm a teacher. At least I'm out of this environment for eight hours a day teaching. Like I just I I couldn't help but wonder at that. Like, wow, when you're forced to quarantine and then suddenly, you know, you're in that hoarded or whatever you want to call it environment 24 seven, how does that change their relationship to those objects? How does it change their relationship to that compulsive disorder? Does it, in, right. I would have to think it might intensify it, but sure. You know, yeah, I that... mean, trauma always can, can make any of our compulsive disorders worse. I know for me, my OCD got a lot worse from the pandemic. I don't even have the germ kind. So not that, but just, you know, the stress of it can always kind of intensify. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. Like isolation has been so much worse during this time. And also just this kind of underpinning inquiry in the book, which is something that I feel like for the entirety of my adult life, I just can't accept about this country is how we don't take care of each other. And like, we don't like, the sad, pathetic, like, unemployment. I mean, yes, the unemployment thing, they gave us a little more than they usually do, right? But it's still, like, there's no real rent relief. Like, those people are going to owe all their back rent, even if they lost their jobs, right? Um, There's not, like, a great expansion of health care despite the pandemic. You know, just all of these safety nets in our country that we don't have, we still don't have them, you know, despite the pandemic. And it's just, yeah, it's just worse. It's just worsening. And I think, um, I don't know, it's a horrible, sad note to end on, but it's also just the truth, right? Well, maybe it's a call to action. We, It's going to come down to us, you know, in, as individuals to make things better. So 
are you announcing your candidacy is I guess my question <laughs> to you. <laughs> I wish. Speaking of crying, I sobbed for like three days after Bernie didn't get the nomination. Well, I mean, at least I feel like though, I feel like Bernie has, he built up enough of a constituency and enough of a movement to have a real voice in the government. And at least that's a positive. Like he's not like the progressive, like people centric side of American legislative aspirations is not nearly as marginalized as it used to be. Right. And that's good for us. And, uh, a credit to him because right. I think in the absence of everything that he built, it would be the same as it ever was. And right. um, maybe, I don't know, maybe the pace of progress is just, it's always going to be slower than we wish it would be. Um, totally. But we have made some, let's just say yeah. that. And if we, and you know what, if we pass these infrastructure bills, I think, especially the, the, the human infrastructure, assuming it doesn't get butchered in the, you know, the ironing out process, would have a discernible impact like the child tax credit and the paid family leave. And there's stuff in there that's real, you know? So fingers crossed on that because I think when it comes to the ways in which we organize ourselves and the ways in which we govern ourselves, you know, provided we continue to have a system of self-government. Um, what I often think is that we lack imagination. Yes. It's, it's not a, it's not a necessarily like a personal failure it's not like oh you lack imagination you failed i think it's by design you know the right. the, the systems that we live in uh, have a way of exhausting us right and a, way, and a way of making us believe that better possibilities don't exist right and you know that's why i think it would be so nice to see some real tangible progress that manifests itself in people's ordinary everyday lives and bank accounts and Agreed. You know, yeah. and if that if that can happen, maybe that will expand people's appetites for a better way of doing things, but also will expand people's imagination in terms of like how how can we do this better? Because this right. is not working for most people. Right. Uh, like, even the people it is working for, if we're going to stick to this theme of interdependence and mm -hmm. interbeing, you know, you could be in the top one percent of our society, and you could be, you know living the dream or whatever it is, but you're going to be living the dream on a private Island or in, right. a, in a gated community surrounded right. by starving people who are homeless. Like it's not right. going to be that fun for you either, you know, right. unless you're going to lose your empathy. And I think on some level, your heart, your hardened heart will have sorrow in it. You know, it's like no one, that's just not, not what humans are, you know, meant to be we're meant like you were saying to be interdependent and yeah i think i think imagination is absolutely where it starts and where it ends right like um we have to imagine what could be other and then work toward it well see that's a that's a more uplifting note to end on right there great look at, <laughs> look, look at what we just did look we just turned that all around and now it's like we went from like what was it like? We're all doomed and alone to like <laughs> evoking John Lennon's Imagine. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I've enjoyed talking with you. Congrats on your book. Are you working on a new book? Or are you just enjoying this one for now? Like, what's what's in the works for you? I am working on a new book. It's a novel about my childhood, um, and in many ways, hoarders led me to it. But I can't say any more than that because I'm really early in the process. Um, 
but yeah, it's actually, it's, I wanted to work on something that it does have emotionally very challenging things in it, but it also has elements to it that are like very fun. Um, because, you know, Hoarders was intense. It was a lot. And so I wanted to write something that had some fun in it. Well, good for you. I, I yeah. eagerly await your novel, your debut novel, wouldn't it be? Thank you. I eagerly, yes, it would be my debut. It will be. Um, I eagerly await your project that you said has something in common with this weird process. <laughs> well, something I'm something I'm working on now. After we finish, like we're going to get off the air, and then I'm going to lie down on my couch, and you're going to give me therapy about <laughs> this project since you've already seen a similar project through to the end. I'm just really excited. It sounds <laughs> exciting. <laughs> well, listen, great to connect with you. Congratulations you and best of luck on the novel. Thank you so much. Bye, Brad. All right, there you go. That's Kate Durbin, and her new poetry collection is called Hoarders. It is available from Wave Books. You can find Kate on the internet at katedurbin.la. She's also on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Hoarders. Go get your copy right now. Don't forget to support the Other People podcast if you are so inclined. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The entire archive is available. More than 700 conversations ready for you to listen to free of charge. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have something to say to me, you can email the show at letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Please note that the app is uh, undergoing some technological fixes because of uh, some changes in the Apple podcast policy. You know, it's, to be honest, it's a little bit confusing to me, but I'm working on it. So if your app is glitchy, just bear with me. It'll be fixed soon. It's a good app. Don't forget to subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel if you're a YouTube person. It's free. Every single episode is now up on YouTube. What a great way to listen. If you want to get gear, you can get gear. There are Other People t-shirts for sale. Just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. The t-shirts are good, people. They're soft. They fit well. They wash well. They wear well. You can also get sweatshirts. There's all sorts of different gear options. Just click on the t-shirt. Get some other people gear. Represent the brand. You can follow the show on social media, on Twitter at OtherPPL, or on Instagram at OtherPPL.podcast. Shout out to my social media director, Joseph Grantham. All right. Happy Halloween coming up.